Hello, and welcome to the latest English Network Revision podcast. Today, you're joining myself, Ted. I'm Emily. And I'm Alex. So, in today's episode, we're going to be continuing our series on Macbeth, and today's focus will be Lady Macbeth, the role she performs in the play, and whether or not she can be understood to be the fourth witch. So, without much further ado... Ah, I see what you've done there. Shakespearean pun. Well, a reference, but sure. Uh, we're going to dive over to Al. Thanks, Dad. Um, so we've already covered much of the context in episode one of this series. Uh, just going to um, pick out a few important pieces of that um, episode and apply it to this this topic. So a good phrase to use when introducing context is this, this that one, art imitates life. Um, if you use that to introduce your points again, you're avoiding this idea of bolting context on um, and instead you're truly appreciating what Shakespeare was trying to achieve with these characters, with these events um, and how it reflected what was happening um, in, at the time in, in England and Europe more, more widely. Um, so James I, as we know, was the King of England and also the, uh, a patron of Macbeth. He wrote the book Demonology um, where he wrote that witches were detestable slaves of the devil. Uh, but he wasn't the only one who was writing about witches at that time. We spoke about how they were often seen as these um, agents of mischief. They could yeah. affect weather. Um, they could possibly harm their enemies remotely. They could shapeshift. But it's all very ambiguous. And um, their power wasn't always seen as that uh, kind of like... Um, the power wasn't that, that kind of pernicious. I mean, like there was, I think there's some instances where villages thought there was a witch living amongst them or there would be a w- woman who'd be rumoured to be a witch yeah. but they wouldn't necessarily do about it and in other instances a village might react very differently to that rumour and might react with much more vitriol so the witches can be seen and their influence can be seen as how they get how they make powerful people or even people who are not necessarily that powerful how they make them out or how they influence them yeah. to act. that's definitely seen in this in this play but what's also really important to remember with this play is that it poses questions and it doesn't answer them so the witches are real yet they're very ambiguous So similar ideas can be applied to Lady Macbeth as to her role, not only um, as the fourth witch, but just how important she is um, in the events of the play, whether she truly does have such that influence on Macbeth which is often attributed to her. Um, So as we go throughout the episode, I think it's just really worth keeping that in mind. Um, Witchcraft was an important um, kind of theme. It's definitely something that was worried, what was a widespread concern at the time. Uh, But again, that doesn't necessarily mean that Shakespeare is, is saying that Lady Macbeth is definitely a witch. There, there are no definites in this play. Mm-hmm. It's all open to interpretation. Absolutely. And just- so the other important contextual factor when considering Lady Macbeth is that of gender um, and gender expectations and the way that her character, both through her um, speech and her action, seems to subvert those Jacobean expectations of femininity, compassion, weakness... Um, and the question is really um, it, the question isn't that does she com- um, subvert those expectations she definitely does yeah. um, but is that the it, the result of her as a interestingly kind of unique character or is it more this idea that her kind of dabbling in and um, surrendering to the supernatural is what allowed her to rid herself of the, yeah. those feminine qualities and I know Emmy, you're going to speak about that in her famous infamous soliloquy Okay, so on to that soliloquy then. So we first meet Lady Macbeth in Act 1, Scene 5. Uh, the scene starts interestingly with her reading a letter from Macbeth. And I think it's really significant the sense that we meet her as a character in isolation, a character in the comfort of her own battlements, in her own castle. And she speaks so freely and openly about her sort of dark desires here. Um, the soliloquy starts with reference to the raven, which is in interesting because obviously that's an omen it signifies death could be on its way and of course 
She then, in the next slab, refers to the fatal entrance of Duncan. But on a deeper level, ravens are also synonymous with creatures who sort of pick at the remains of fallen soldiers. So you could see the raven as even a metaphor for Lady Macbeth and Macbeth. These characters, these parasitic characters who sort of mm. feed off the power um, of those who are more powerful in the play, those who are more benevolent than them. Um, and that sort of introduces this whole soliloquy in that she feels now that her power has been awakened and what she wants to do is rid herself of all that femininity, all of those feminine traits, so that she can then convince Macbeth to do the deed and kill King Duncan. Um, the use of language is really interesting here. Um, she calls upon mystical external forces to assist her. So she uses the imperative come three times here, come thick night, come you spirits. Um, and she's always sort of commanding the supernatural. Now you can interpret that in two ways. So some people see this soliloquy as evidence of her being the fourth witch, that she is so comfortable in speaking uh, to the supernatural. She mm. is communicating outside the great chain of being, which we know was such a sin at the time. Um, and even her speech has these incantatory rhythms. So some people find this as evidence, sort of your form, first and foremost piece of evidence that she is the fourth witch in the play. She's so comfortable and she sort of converses with the witches to get them to do her bidding for her, to get them to come and change her, to affect her. You could interpret it the opposite way. The fact that she actually needs external metaphysical forces to give her that power that she mm -hmm. so craves could actually imply that beneath the surface she is, she's completely lacking in the zeal, the evil that's required to, to commit the sin. Regardless of how you interpret this, whether it, you do see it as a scene of, of the ultimate portrayal of power or you think that her power is undermined by the fact she has to use external forces to get it, there's no doubt about, referring back to what Alex said, this idea of the subversion of the gender norms. So she's desperate to rid herself of any femininity. She asks for her blood to be made thick. She wants to stop up the access and passage to her more. So she wants to feel like she cannot feel guilty anymore. Um, and she has to be unsexed. And I, I think it's interesting as well here that the kind of the semantic focus here is on, you know, she, she's referencing animals. She's kind of got this real kind of anatomical obsession. Yeah. And that's very much redolent of what the witches already said at this moment of the play. When they're casting their spells, you know, they're using animal parts, they're using body parts, and they're listing all these things. Yeah. And while she's not necessarily casting a spell, the fact that she's almost conjuring up the same images Absolutely. in the audience's minds is, is really in a subtle way creating those parallels from the very introduction of the character. It's the rhetorical language she uses, the listing, the repeated imperatives. It sort of forebodes that uh, persuasive influence she will later have on Macbeth. Mm -hmm. um, and you can see it either as a literal sort of call to the weird sisters to assist her, or you could even see it as a, as a more metaphorical sort of pep talk almost to herself. Mm -hmm. You know, even if she's not calling on external forces here, she's definitely acknowledging her position as a woman in society, acknowledging the assumptions that come with that and the femininity that, that she possesses. And she realises that in order to do the deed, she's going to have to possess more yeah. evil. It's very much the language of a prayer, isn't it? And I think, mm. again, it's, we're talking about subverting what, what this character does, um, subverts gender expectations, but also this is uh, forsaking religion as well. Yeah. Um, so where, where someone, where, let's say, in, in the... We spoke about different types of violence uh, last episode, um, talking about how if a, if a warrior is preparing for battle for that acceptable violence, they may pray to God to, yeah. to make them yeah. strong or to make them brave. Um, she knows that 
in, at this moment she is um, about to engage in a completely unacceptable form of violence and therefore she calls on other forces out again outside of that chain of being that great chain of being um, to ensure that she is um, able to kind of like carry out these acts absolutely and she recognizes doesn't she um, that there is an element of evil that goes along with Iraq. So I think there's a lot of a debate throughout the play, like, is Macbeth a moral man? Does Lady Macbeth have a moral compass? Is she completely Machiavellian? Or, you know, does she have an awareness of how evil her intent is? And I think a lot of this soliloquy is complete evidence for the fact that she realises how immoral, how anti-religious that this deed is, yet she's willing to do it anyway. And she, she criticises Macbeth in the next few scenes, um, saying, oh, not without ambition, with, but without the illness should attend it. And here we kind of see that before Lady Macbeth has had that interaction with Macbeth, she has to get that evil too. She initially had the ambition without the evil, but yeah. here she is getting the the sort of ruthlessness she feels. Um, now, ultimately, later in the play, and we'll come on to discuss this later in the podcast, we see that all of these calls are actually fruitless. You know, they don't come to fruition because she does feel guilt. She does not have the access and passage from all stop. She yeah. she simply doesn't. So we can see that this ends up being futile, but at this point in the play, you know, even the language to describe the castle, my battlement, mm-hmm. we definitely see her as a as a dominant figure. And it's interesting that firstly we see her on her own rather than with her husband. So we can really sort of see the parallels when she then meets him and the way that she uses language to manipulate. Mm. Um so what I'm just gonna look at now is the best kind of reactions to um, to the witches when he first meets them and then kind of Macbeth's first interactions with Lady Macbeth in the play. And these, it's a really interesting comparison you can make here because on one hand, it could definitely be used to support the idea that you know, the witches and, and Lady Macbeth are almost working in tandem to kind of mm. manipulate and cajole Macbeth into, into pursuing this course of action. But there's another interpretation, which is that actually Macbeth being the kind of the master of his own fate here. So there's, it's a really interesting to compare these two moments. So, your really obvious but important quotation for when Macbeth meets the witches is that just as they're about to kind of, I think usually, vanish into thin air, he he commands them to stay you in perfect speakers. And, you know, we've we've analysed that quotation previously on this podcast, so I'm not going into too much detail there, but we really see Macbeth's desire for them to stay, despite the fact he recognises them as imperfect speakers and realises that their ambiguous language contains, you know, tricks and it, it can't be trusted, he wants them to stay. And again, after he left, he says to you know, Banquo, would they have stayed? And he, he's filled with regret. He wants them to stay longer. So we see that the best reaction to the witches is, is one of kind of, of desire. He, he wants yeah. to know more. He wants to, if not necessarily follow this course of action, find out if yeah. what they're saying it's is kind of true. kind of a troubled kind of curiosity. Yeah. Yeah. Brilliant phrase, that troubled curiosity. Love it. So then following this, he writes the letter to, uh, to Lady Macbeth. And it's really, again, interesting that the first thing he does pretty much after, as soon as he can, is writes a letter to his wife to telling her, with her everything that's happened. Mm-hmm. And we see him almost as kind of like a, you know, a child running to a parent, kind of wanting to tell them what's happened at school and, that and day. And seek that approval, isn't Certainly it? Certainly the junior partner. Yeah, 100%. He needs her advice. He needs her input. He needs to know what she thinks almost immediately. And, and when we see Lady Macbeth's reaction to this, we re- it really compounds this idea of Macbeth being this kind of um, caught between these two great forces yeah. which pull and push him towards this, you know, his inevitable kind of doom at this stage. And it definitely seems to initially support the idea that Macbeth almost lacks his own free will here. Yeah. So, you know, let's look at some of the quotations here. So Macbeth writes to her, my dearest partner of greatness. 
So as we've touched upon already, you know, that subverts our kind of expectations. He's recognised her as an know, equal. Be- very much as an equal there. Um, and, you know, he's kind of talking. But th- as soon as she's finished this letter, her reaction is, yeah, I do fear thy nature. Thou wouldst be great. So she's almost got this condescending, patronising yeah. reaction to him of like... He's sweet, but he actually doesn't have the stomach for this. Yeah. She's worrying that he's not being able to see this through. Yeah. And straight away we see how she's, you know, she's setting it up to get what she wants. So she talks about, um, uh, what's the quotation? Hide thee hither that I may pour my spirits in thine ear. And yeah. that's really where this idea of Lady Macbeth as the fourth witch starts kind of kicking off. Because we see how she's going to plan to manipulate him. And the use, very deliberate use of that noun spirits there, kind of yeah. making it seem as if she herself has a supernatural ability. And it's really, you know, that's creating the idea that Macbeth is caught between them and that there's almost no escape from him here. He's trapped between these two great forces. So that's one interpretation which would support the idea that, you know, these, that Lady Macbeth is the fourth witch. But yeah. let's just go back and think about how Macbeth reacts to the witches. You know, stay you imperfect speakers. So, yeah, he's, we're saying that his initial reaction is one of, rather than fear, one of desire. Mm. He wants to know more. Now, we're not in a position to know how the relationship between Macbeth and Lady Macbeth was formulated. But I think his reaction to the witches gives us some insight. So we see Lady Macbeth as a character who's willing to kind of dominate and push him. But the question we must ask ourselves is, is why is the relationship like that? And why would Macbeth have chosen to marry someone of, of that nature? Yeah. Well, in his reaction to the witches, I think we gain some insight. I think he would have recognised Lady Macbeth as a woman of great power, of great influence of great ability to persuade and to push him towards on a subconscious level or maybe even a conscious level what he wants and if we kind of rode back further into you know previous in the play but Beth talks about you know stars hide the fires let uh, light not see the black and deep desires I mean he he clearly has these desires within him and I would say that he's attracted to Lady Macbeth and he has this relationship with her where he allows her to fulfil that dominant role because he needs that he He needs needs someone to give him that final push And it's, it's the way he reacts to the witches as well. He's allowing these influences to influence him because that's what he wants. So while you could say that Lady Macbeth is a fourth witch, even if that's true or not, I think it, once you recognise that point that he allows himself to be manipulated and that he wants this relationship yeah. with Lady Macbeth and that's fulfilling a desire he has, I think that downplays the level of influence they have and I think that's important to recognise. So I think what you're describing there, Ted, can be kind of, if you, you could look at it from a psychoanalytic point of view, you t- talk about the Jungian shadow, mm-hmm. uh, this idea that all human beings have this um, subconscious dark side. So the shadow is that which is not touched by the light of consciousness. Yeah. Uh, so Macbeth's subconscious, uh, his dark and his black and deep desires, his dark side. And through, if you, if you look at it through that Jungian lens, this idea that you are, that everybody, as they become integrated beings, um, they are confronted with their shadow. Um, and Macbeth is confronted with his shadow when he meets the witches, yeah. mm-hmm. when they when they kind of like dangle that um, prospect of um, Thane of God or King Hereafter. He's that that's something He's that enticed. is awakened, yeah. yeah. And yeah. that's why he feels that trouble. Like when we said, it's tr- it's a trouble it's a curiosity, trouble curiosity yeah. because he knows that it's something that is always is there. Um, it's not like ambition was just implanted on him by yeah. the witches. It was something that was always it's, within yeah, him. To awaken, yeah. And then if you if you kind of you can. You can extend that further by looking at what what does Lady Macbeth represent for Macbeth. Well, mm. they complement each other in terms of what their strengths and weaknesses are. So yeah. he he is physically violent. She is certainly like morally um, bankrupt or, or ruthless. So Lady Macbeth can be read um, as that side of Macbeth which he does not acknowledge. Yeah. So it's everything that he that he 
doesn't in his own ego doesn't acknowledge he wants to be um valor's minion he yeah. wants to be brave macbeth he wants to be a noble cousin yeah. and yet when when he chooses his partner his partner in greatness he chooses somebody who is none of these is things, none of these things. Yeah. Yeah, she's exceptionally underhand she's um she's she's ruthless um willing Blessless. to yeah willing yeah. to do anything in order to to achieve ambition um so lady macbeth then can be seen as if not the fourth witch, then a kind of like a manifestation of Macbeth's subconscious. Yeah. That shadow that he always carried with him, and yet he could never truly realise in his current his current guise, his ego as the the warrior, the general, and the hero. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I just think that's an interesting way to look at it. But also, if you, you can extend that even further, that Lady Macbeth, you know, she is her own character. She has her own shadow. But instead of saying, um, as as is kind of like recommended, you incorporate the shadow into your being. So you are aware of your of your inner evil, let's say, but you but you don't act on it. Yeah. She acts purely up, upon that, and then later, so does so does Macbeth. Yeah. So Macbeth abandons his um, previous image for that for pure desire, for pure impulsiveness and and um, and defiance. And it's just interesting if you like you said if you flip that round, wisely, Macbeth attracts Macbeth. Well, Macbeth is an inherently confused and conflicted character. Mm-hmm. And while Lady Macbeth puts his face to the world, well, she puts, she's got, I mean, there's a great um, belief in kind of, um, in kind of ancient Japanese systems, whereas this idea of you show a face to the world, you show a face to your friends and family, and you have yeah. a face you show only to yourself. Yeah. Um, but she's got that face she only shows to herself is when she talks about she couldn't kill King Duncan because he looked too much like her father. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So she pretends to Macbeth like she's her friends and family, or just Macbeth, that she's this hyper violent character. But the face that we know she truly has is one where she's troubled, where she's not as tough as she pretends to be. And so maybe on some level she's attracted to Macbeth or there's that connection there because he yeah. represents her own struggle between good and evil that she doesn't actually want to admit to herself. Absolutely. You can link a lot of what Alex has said to all of that sort of imagery of concealment that we've already looked at. So mm. where she criticises Macbeth for having um, a face like a book, which yeah. men may read mm. strange matters from. She basically criticises him for being an open book, she she commands him to be more of a serpent rather than be the innocent yeah. flower that he is on the surface. There's a lot of imagery sort of to do with false faces as yeah. well, so that links very nicely to that. Um, we've definitely got, when we're looking at Lady Macbeth as the fourth witch, what we've got to come back to is this idea that the three witches play a role in manipulating and puppeteering Macbeth and mm-hmm. awakening those inner desires that he has. And Lady Macbeth acts as a spur for that. And I think... It's important to say at this stage, perhaps one without the other wouldn't have succeeded in manipulating him. Lady Macbeth gives a physical form to those metaphysical aids. So, you know, there would always be the questions if it was just the supernatural, because just like Alex was saying, at the start of the play, he isn't a corrupt man. He he still has sort of quite a strong moral compass. So it's only when it's his own wife um, commanding as well that those together are enough of a force. So that's why she tends to be seen... In, in in like sort of often academic literature to be the fourth witch because they have the similar role yeah. in sort of bringing about Macbeth's downfall really. So one main thing that I would say draws the link between them is how Macbeth is completely under the spell of Lady Macbeth and the way that I think that's most obvious is in the subtleties of Shakespeare's language. So Lady Macbeth's strength of purpose is contrasted with Macbeth's tendency to waver. So she has to, early on in the play, in Think Act 1, Scene 7, she has to manipulate through her language mm-hmm. and criticise his masculinity. Yeah. So she says things like, when you durst do it, then you were a man. She calls him a coward in his own esteem. Mm-hmm. So a lot of this language of masculinity, and indeed the tactic of criticising and questioning his masculinity, 
Um, he responds in the way she hoped, in yeah. that he then resolves that we will kill the king, and you know he allows her to take more of a role in at their great yeah. quell. Yeah. because of that criticism and it's interesting that later on when Macbeth wants something uh, that being he wants the murderers to go and kill Banquo mm. the only tactic he knows that manipulative tactic yeah. is to question their masculinity so we almost see even though Lady Macbeth takes a sidestep in this point of the play her power lives on because of that synergy with, with between the two of them so he criticises the murderers saying in the catalogue you go for men i.e. Mm -hmm. You should be men, but it's about time you started acting like it. I, I think for I think that really is the the Lady Macbeth scene. There's lots of moments where you kind of get lots of fascinating insight into her. But if you really want to look at the relationship between them, then I think at one scene seven is the scene. In particular, I love the way this scene is structured. So it begins with Macbeth um, kind of outlining reasons why he should not kill the king. Yeah. And he talks about kind of, um, you know... That's his soliloquy at the start, isn't 100%. it? hundred percent. And we, and we see here how he's kind of, he's really come back. Initially, when he spoke to Lady Macbeth, he seemed keen. Now he's not only really having doubts, gets to the stage where eventually... And within the course of the next few moments... It's literally the first thing she says back to him, was the hope drunk wherein you dressed yourself, yeah. hath it slept since? She knows exactly how to come back yeah. at him. And, she, and, you know, and then he, all of a sudden he's protesting, as I dare do all that may become a man who dare do more as none. He's so sensitive about this, we see it, you know, immediately. And then it gets to the moment where clearly she does understand how his mind works. Because eventually he says, if we should fail... Yeah. And the weakness of that question, and it reveals, well, hold on. The reason why he doesn't want to do it is not all the reasons he was just saying. So that the hilarity there is in his soliloquy, when supposedly he's being honest with the audience because it's his thoughts and feelings, yeah. he's not. Because then when he's ha having a conversation with her, it reveals the reason he doesn't want to do it is in case they fail in the court. Yeah. Yeah. So she knows him better than he knows himself. And then, you know, she responds, we fail, but screw your courage, this taking place will not fail. She knows it better than he knows himself. She knows how to manipulate him. And then at the end of the scene, again, the reason I, I love the way it's structured so much is that it finishes with him using this rhyming couplet. And going back to comparing her to the witches, before Macbeth meets the witches, he kind of has this language, so foul and fair day I have not seen. You know, and straight away, we've got this connection in our mind between him and the witches. Yeah. And we see that he must have some kind of, sort of darkness within him to be speaking similar to them. But he only comes out in this rhyming couplet after this conversation with Lady Macbeth. Yeah. So we see if there was evil within him, then, you know, the witches have pushed it on a little bit more. But, but she's, she's the really one to really bring it out of him. And to come back to your point about the mask, this is a quotation that says, Away and mock the time with fairer show, false face must hide what the false heart doth know. So not only is he speaking in a rhyming couplet and has clearly been influenced by the it's witches and Lady Macbeth. Obscurity. But that language of duplicity and obscurity, he's really drawn from Lady Macbeth. And again, the way that scene is so beautifully structured emphasises the way he's been influenced, but also the way... there, isn't yeah. he? But again, Lady Macbeth knows him better than he knows himself. Absolutely, because in the soliloquy, just to go back to Act 1, Scene 5, she said, Come thick night and pull thee in the dunnest smoke of hell. I find that quotation really interesting in the sense that not only is she using the imperative come, suggesting the power that she at least thinks she has, yeah. um, she's there trying to command nature itself, which we know for, for, for someone, a woman of the time, it's just an impossible act. And the whole sort of language there is about concealment. She wants nature to sort of be on her side in concealing the, her keen knife so that no one knows what she's doing and she, and she wants that, that. But also that she sees not the, the wound it makes, so she doesn't she want to, doesn't want to, to face up to it either. Yeah, so it's, that, it's kind of like um, 
blinding herself to the, what needs to be done in order mm. to achieve what she wants to Absolutely. achieve. Absolutely, and we see that mimicking of language later on when Macbeth says, stars hide your fires, let not like see my black and deep desire. So again, that mimicking of the language with the imperative, the light imagery, this obsession with concealment, with obscurity, again goes back to our previous point that they know what they're doing is completely wrong, yeah. yet because of each other's sort of influence, they're, they're, they're sort of resigned to do it anyway. Mm. So we're just going to move on and look at the the kind of the questions of gender when comparing uh, Lady Macbeth with the witches. So I'm just going to start off by you know considering the the social role that kind of the belief in witches plays and, and the questions that brings up. So you know what are the witches? Well, the witches you know first of all there's this widespread belief in them, but the people who were typically accused of being witches would be. Uh, women who might live alone in a village or in a town who were the subject of suspicion because they might have fallen outside of the conventions of the time. Yeah. So they wouldn't necessarily have a family. They might not be going to mass. Basically, you know, social uh, pariahs in a sense because they've fallen, you know, out of the bounds outside of what's, what's deemed normal. And we see there the kind of the, the strict expectations of the roles women need to perform and the dangers that could befall you if you didn't, fall within those categories. So I think it's really interesting the role witches play here in, in, in questions of gender, especially compared to Lady Macbeth, because they represent the the kind of the controls that are put upon us in that regard, or the controls that were put upon women. Are they genderless than the women, would you say? Well, the witches? I think I think they're not. I think they reflect a I, th- I mean, who knows what Shakespeare thought? I, I generally don't think Shakespeare had a belief in the supernatural. That just doesn't chime. He seems to have such a great insight into human character. He always seems to be someone who recognises the evil and the capacity for you know, terrible things is within people, not within the supernatural. And again, that's what I think is mm-hmm. the message here in the play. So I think what, with the witches, it's more the kind of the embodiment of our fears of, of things that are unusual and unknown yeah. and... Mm-hmm. And they are the weird sisters, aren't they? Like, yeah. they are, they're definitely feminine characters, but again, they, they seem to kind of like, um, they're, not, they're certainly not conventionally feminine, so uh, Banquo describes them as having beards. Um, yeah. And you ought to be women, but your beards forbid me to interpret that you're yeah. so. So there's, a, there's an interesting thought to, to have there about what the witches represent is, is not just, and, and how the witches relate to gender, is that the fact that they, again, they are kind of, they're kind of transgressions against um, what, what gender stereotypes, yeah. well, not stereotypes, just gender expectations of the time, um, and the fact that they that they subvert them means that they subvert the mo- almost the most essential part of what it is to be human, or uh, the, the audience's understanding of humanity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and just on that, there's yeah, I think there's an important point to recognise here. So there's two in modern society kind of conventional schools of thought on on the idea of gender. So the first is a, a view of biological determin- determinism, which is that there are, between the two genders, male, men and women, there are two different kind of modes of behaviours and attitudes that women will, by biology, be more inclined to be caring, maternal, um, kind of more peaceful, less inclined to fights, etc. Whereas men are more likely to be uh, aggressive or more likely to be dominant or more likely to be kind of quite forceful in the way they express their opinions. And if you're a biological determinist, you believe that those behaviours are determined by your biology. Now, that, that way of thinking has been the most popular way of thinking about gender for kind of most of Western history. But more recently, people have been seeing gender through the role of uh, what we could call gender performativity, which was kind of most famously put forward by Judith Butler, I want to say in the, in the early 80s. And this is the idea that 
gender is a role you perform, that society teaches you that men should do this and women should do that, and that you step up and you perform those certain roles. And I think it's important to understand that framework when we're looking at gender as as an idea in the play Macbeth, because that will really inform your analysis and you can look at the way we could understand different things. Because on one hand, there's an interpretation that actually Shakespeare is almost radical for his day and is challenging the conventions of gender and the roles that are assigned. But on the other hand, he could be seen as someone who is, you know, in the play, there's a message that, yeah, you are, in fact, gender mm. determined biologically by your, by your gender. So we're yeah. just going to touch on that a little bit forward in this interpretation now. Yeah. And, the, and the, I think the, the fact that the witches, um, the interesting thing about the witches, about having the beards and the fact that, they're gen- that their gender is somewhat ambiguous, is that it's even the, the kind of like the physical, biological mm. um, appearance of yeah. them seems, yeah. seems uh, different, seems strange, um, certainly to a Jacobean audience. Um, and the fact that, but, but then if you, if you kind of like take that further to Lady Macbeth, um, th- is biologically a woman, um, and yet her, the, the role that she performs is that of the masculine. Yeah. Um, so she seems to, she seems to, um, reject those, those performative yeah. expectations. She's the one who's dominant in the, in the marriage. She's the one yeah. who, and, and even, even after the murder, like she's the one who, it, it talk, we're talking about strength and certainty yeah. in action. Macbeth is losing his mind. She's, um, my hands are in yeah. the colour, but I shame to wear hearts so white. Yeah, and and we'll leave and, all the rest to me. And yeah. where, yeah, exactly. So she she clear, she cleans everything up. She's the she says a little water clears us of this deed. Um, she's the one who is is like calm and collected in the situation, whereas he is hysterical. So again, yeah. those kind of like I will say say stereotypically. Um, expected behaviours are kind of um, reversed between the two of them. And, and that's why the question of, of gender there is really, really fascinating because it almost seems in those moments as if, you know, there's almost this message that gender is just these kind of, a role you're given that you can reject, you can cast mm-hmm. those shackles off and that Lady Macbeth is able to be this dominant. And you must remember that in, you know, for this Jacobean audience, they will have never have seen, a, you know, a woman of, of noble birth behave in this way. It would have been so shocking and so antithetical to anything they could even conceive of that it would it would you know be mind blowing for them. I think it's, it's not so much that it, that it would be they'd never see a woman dominant in a marriage. I think, but it's I think in particular the, that in and 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 marriage of the aristocracy in particular. Maybe I think it's more just the murderous aspect of what she's doing and what mm-hmm. they're doing. Yeah. Because um, I think it's almost like a cliche to say like who's the boss at home. I think that's something that's been going on for for like time immemorial. Well, I would say that, I do, well, I understand that idea. I think this idea of kind of the women wearing the trousers or if, mm. so in particular in Ireland and in places like Italy, particularly Catholic countries, there's often interpretation of the, the woman women being in charge home. of the household. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But that's very much within a working class family. And actually yeah, the higher you get up in social He's class. Like a yeah. No, I, I still, I still don't think that that's a. I hate. I also really I hate it when kids like. The audience will be shocked at how yeah, powerful I can't she is. Yeah, I saying like, oh, what? Lady Macbeth stands up to her husband. That is so shocking. I've never seen anything like that in my life. I don't think that's true. I think that's probably something that's just that's quite common. Strong women will have existed forever. Um, not maybe not necessarily in terms of of um, kind of having hard, not not hard power, but like actually having official power, but having influence and being able to tell their husbands that they're wrong about something. Um, I don't think you'd have to, you'd have to dig too deep to find stories of people like that. But I, I do think the views would have changed because of the reign of Queen Elizabeth I, which obviously she had just passed just away and she'd been a really successful ruler and had changed those views. But part of the reason why she had such a difficulty as Queen, I think, is because the higher you go up the social class, the more prescriptive the roles are. Yeah. And that even, you know, 
if we think of kind of uh, a woman of, of power within the aristocracy, while she had this kind of realm over the household, when it came to you look at a show like Game of Thrones, and it does give a realistic portrait. You said into, you were going to get Game I did yeah. into kind of the medieval role that women perform. So you might you know you might look at Catelyn Stark, like she yes, in those private moments might have quite an open relationship with Ned Stark, but in the books you realise that's something that other people find shocking and that mm. most noble women were used basically as trading cards in swapping power and they did yeah. have very clearly defined roles I think Lady McBrothers would shock that particularly for the aristocracy maybe less so for the, for the groundlings but fundamentally we don't say and the audience would have been completely shocked by yeah, Lady yeah, Macbeth, who yeah, should have been yeah. in the kitchen, not commanding her husband, because that's yeah, where we don't, don't like don't talk that. about domestic arrangements, because Lady Macbeth did not do any cooking. She yeah. did not do any I cleaning. hate it when people do no that. Way, no way is that the case. Um, anyway. There was something I wanted to lead on from your point about... Um, Gender expectations means so versa. So it's just so going back. So there's one idea is that uh, Shakespeare is kind of saying that the idea that gender is a role that you kind of perform here. However, when we look at the actual views of Lady Macbeth herself, we can be left in no doubt. Even if Shakespeare believes that gender is a performance, we can be left in no doubt that Lady Macbeth believes that you are determined by your gender yeah. and your behaviours and attitudes are. And that's why in that soliloquy she is saying, come and sex me here. because She, she equates... feels like she needs to be rid of her femininity, but literally. Yeah. So she talks about take my milk for gall. So she wants that feminine milk yeah. used to sort of bring a baby yeah, up. Exactly. She wants yeah. that to be turned into gall, to poison, to mm-hmm. bile. And I think that's the important thing to think about, that her, her ruthlessness and her masculine traits... Um, you can they can be read as um, artificial. They're artificial. Yeah. It's yeah. artificial ruthlessness. It's um, artificial strength. It's artificial in terms of how calm she is after the murder. Yeah. How certain she is um, because it was something that she again the idea that her um, masculinity is so inextricably linked with the supernatural. The, all the analysis that you just gave us there um, makes it really clear that she the reason why she is able to act this way yeah. or the reason why she is able to be so um, dominant yes but also again it's the murderousness which is the shocking part not necessarily the, the imbalance in the relationship um, it's because she has this supernatural influence and once that starts to dissipate, and again, it's always going to be it's always going to be fool's gold. It's never something. Yeah. But if you're talking about the underlying moral of the play, um, it's never something that you can rely on. It's uh, it's it, it's sorcery. It's witchcraft. It's something that you can you can grab onto for a short amount of time. But, it um, but it's never something that that you can sustain, and it's always something that's going to betray you eventually. I think absolutely that leads us perfectly onto the next part of the podcast, which is going to look at the necessary demise of Lady Macbeth. So we've talked, I think, in the first podcast, the main thing I encouraged everyone to bring context back to is that the play was written in the wake of the gunpowder plot. So whether we're looking at issues of femininity, issues of witchcraft, issues of religion, like you were saying before, King James is at the top of this hierarchy. It's in his best interest as a king, especially after a failed assassination attempt, that everyone in society sort of stays where they've been positioned. Mm -hmm. People don't get ideas above their station. People don't want to subvert the norms. So we see that in the wake of the gunpowder plot, Shakespeare raises, through Lady Macbeth, a pertinent warning. Now, that isn't a warning against women being powerful, I don't think. I think it's much deeper than that. I think it's a warning against people challenging the status quo, challenging Mm. the norms of the time. Um, And therefore, she undergoes a necessary demise, as does Macbeth and as does their relationship. So we talked before about the first interaction that they have, where through the letter, Macbeth refers to his wife as my dearest partner of greatness. We've looked at how that is 
giving her uh, an equal footing. He uses the adjective dear, the pronoun my. He's using all of this language to flatter, to appeal to her. By the end, the my is gone. She's no longer the partner of greatness and he dismisses her as dearest Chuck. <laughs> we see, I mean, a Chuck, a flightless bird, you know, yeah. that says it all. He sees her as someone who has spurred him on but now has no significance the in their is, deed. The has turned around. Absolutely. We see it goes from where they were keen to get the crown but as soon as they have the crown, just like Alex was just saying, these things won't last, you know... They can rely on the supernatural, they can change who they are biologically, but it won't last. And that is why when they get the crown, they are left in doubtful joy and restless ecstasy. They can't enjoy the fruits of their labour because their labour has gone mm-hmm. against God and have gone against mm-hmm. the natural order. Most interestingly for me, from Lady Macbeth's perspective, is that from her soliloquy, she showed this desperation to be queen. Okay, so she obviously had to root that in... Uh, her husband becoming king, but it was all about her being the queen. Even when she talked about what she wanted the supernatural to do for her, she referred to being filled from the crown to the toe. So obviously crown meaning head, but obviously indicative of the fact that she was already envisaging that crown on her head. Sadly for Lady Macbeth, and poignantly really, she's only ever referred to as the queen in the play once she's dead. So we see the demise of their relationship in the sense that Macbeth learns from a third-hand perspective that his wife has died. The quote, the queen, my lord, is dead. And then obviously at the very end of the play, we see Lady Macbeth referred to as the fiend-like queen who died by self and violent hands. So it's alluded to the fact that she killed herself, but her death takes place off stage. And this is why I think that we can only sort of conclude that she's not the fourth witch. Because whereas at the start of the play, she seems to have the power We talked before about the fact that the power is only ever given to her. It's given to her through Macbeth's position in society, the more he gets promoted. It's given to her through her um, dealings with the murdering ministers, the weird sisters, when she asks for supernatural support to become more evil. But ultimately, as we said before, she suffers as a result of that. And I think it's necessary that Shakespeare allows Lady Macbeth to suffer. So we see there in Act 5, Scene 1, the, the, the ramifications, ramifications of the girl. Yeah, Absolutely, yeah. we do. Um, so there's almost these utterances that refer back to previous soliloquies and previous speeches from Lady Macbeth. So she refers back to the death of Duncan, which um, you referred to before. That was the moment where we saw some kind of femininity, some morality in her, because she yeah. said, I couldn't kill him because he looked like my father. And she reflects back on that now while she's sleepwalking and hallucinating. She says, who would have thought the old man to have so much blood in him? She then refers to Lady Macduff, the Thane of Five had a wife. Where is she now? She uses this rhetorical question. She's no longer using rhetorical questions to probe Macbeth. She's using them now to probe herself and make herself live up to the consequences Mm -hmm. of her actions. It's absolutely clear now that all those feminine qualities she wanted to rid herself of that that ridding didn't happen because here she is suffering with the manifestation of her guilt. But just on that that quotation, who would have thought the old man to have so much blood in him is quite an interesting one in that, you know, there's a certain ambiguity to the phrase old man, could that perhaps be, again, in, in reference to her father? But there's almost a, a sacrilegious note to that in yeah. that she's like, she's almost surprised at how guilty she feels, right? With this blood being you know, a metaphor. Who would have thought, like, I d- it's almost I didn't realise. Yeah. Who would have like thought this? killing the king was a bad idea? And it's even, <laughs> even amidst kind of the insanity of her guilt, she's still got this kind of, this, this degree of arrogance, this degree of, you know, she's incredulous that, that she can feel so bad about this. And then again, possibly, you know, if she is referring to the king as the old man, that yeah. kind of, that lack of respect. 
shows that she's still on you know outside of the great chain of being she's still being sacrilegious she's still not really learnt from her mistakes mm-hmm. she's just been I, punished I don't know I really say I think it's, it's a purposeful decision here that she is supposed to be sleepwalking and completely without the power that she previously possessed over all of her language because mm-hmm. everything that she's said so far has been so calculated we can analyse her actions but here I just think it is the ramblings it's, of someone who's suffering it's poetic justice it is and she says you know a perfect quotation to support that is she says whilst trying to rid herself of the damned spot, she says, will these hands never be clean? And obviously that that immediately calls the image back to where she said, really patronisingly of Macbeth, a little water will clear us of this deed. And we've got that huge dramatic irony there where she thought that this guilt would be easy to live with. She thought that this crown would be easy to keep. And actually she's realising that's not the case. But um, even just on that quotation, I mean, I think what's really interesting in that, in that general passage, when, often when she talks about the murder of King Duncan, is that while she's putting this brave face in it, she often foreshadows her later guilt. Mm. So a little water clears us of this deed is the perfect example of that, in that she says deed. I always find it so interesting that she, one interpretation she's using this language to be sensitive around Macbeth, but knowing what we know about her own reluctance, the fact she refers to it as a deed and uses that almost euphemism. It's euphemistic, mm. isn't it? It's, it's, it's so interesting that she bring, finds herself unable to call, call it what it is. Yeah. She adopts this language. And again, it's kind of, you know, she's simultaneously being assertive and sacrilegious and kind of like acting like it's no big deal. Yeah, also, also too scared well, to also, face up yeah, to what she's doing. And that, that represents the contradiction that's within her. Absolutely. I'll just touch finally. This is still to this day one of the best things that people's ever come out with in a lesson. So we were looking at the <laughs> soliloquies. So we're looking at at one scene five and trying to sort of marry up quotations with that five scene one. And one of my pupils noticed that in the first soliloquy, she uses the imperative come three times. I talked about that before. In this scene now, she says this. She says, come, 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 come. And my pupil put their hand off and it was just a beautiful moment. And she said, do you think that's the final proof that she is the fourth witch because now she's added that fourth imperative here and this is the consequence of her trying to perform that role as a witch, mm-hmm. perform that role um, like we were saying as a dominant woman and here is her comeuppance. I just thought Very that was a lovely like little it. nugget from Ellie Mardy that was two years ago. Good shout Not that she'll be listening now. <laughs> Um, so I think we're going to kind of draw our, our conversation to, a, to an end now. But I think what we've seen throughout this episode is that with Lady Macbeth, there are so many questions that kind of are left unanswered here. And it's you know, really important in your analysis that you have your own interpretations, that you acknowledge the different ideas, yeah. but that you have the one that you yourself believe in, that you justify that clearly. And that's what I think we all love when we read responses from candidates, is seeing the ideas they have, seeing their own interpretations, yeah. and seeing the unique way in which they've run with it. So obviously, you know, listen to this, but reflect on it, come up with what you think is best and uh, and good luck with your revision. Final question. Is Lady Macbeth the fourth witch, Alex? No. I would say no. I don't think the question matters. And that's all we've got time for today. That's all we've got time for today indeed. Right, it's bye from me, Ted. It's bye from me, Emily. And bye from me, Alex. Thank you for listening, English nerds. Bye. bye.